Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Heart Gallery podcast. I am Rebecca Rivola the Kremer, and I created this podcast to inquire into the various roles that art can play in helping us build deeper connections to our surroundings and to others. I have worked as an artist, a creative advisor, and a visual communicator in the climate and humanitarian space, uh, also social change space for over a decade, and also have a personal art practice where I explore relationships between individuals, other living beings, and our earth. Listen to this podcast to hear from myself and other artists engaging in these interrelationships with all kinds of approaches, philosophies, and hopes for the future of humanity and our planet. For this first episode, I wanted to introduce the themes of the podcast, but uh, since I'm so much happier asking questions and being in dialogue, but mostly asking questions, I didn't want to do one of those monologue type episodes. And so today I will be having a conversation with my friend, Alice Irene Whitaker. Alice Irene is a writer and an environmental communications leader. She is the creator and host of Reseed, which is another podcast about repairing our relationship to nature. I actually made the cover art for her podcast, and she featured me as one of her guests last year, which was my first podcast appearance. Alice Irene has been published in national and international publications, including The Globe and Mail in Canada and Permaculture Magazine. She was shortlisted for the Canadian Broadcast Corporation, uh, the CBC, Literary Awards. She was selected for a fellowship for the Martha's Vineyard, fancy, Institute of Creative Writing, and she received a Bill and Melinda Gates Innovation Award. Alice Irene is also the Director of Marketing and Communications at Smart Prosperity Institute and Natural Step Canada. She plays a leadership communication role on national initiatives like Circular Economy Leadership Canada and the Canada Plastics Pact. In her career, she has worked closely with leaders and CEOs in nonprofit, gender equality, and environmental organizations, including as Director of Communications and Public Relations at Plan International Canada. So inspiring. Uh, and she's also currently writing a creative nonfiction book exploring regeneration, care, and circular living. Her research for her book has taken her to ranches and farms and fashion runways and homes where she's engaged in conversation with farmers and builders and designers and so many other people who are living in a way that repairs our relationship with the natural world. It's so cool and so in line with this podcast. I mean, I'm clearly inspired by her and her initiatives. Uh, and we talk about some of those experiences today in addition to talking about why we started podcasts specifically, where our philosophies and creative approaches came from. And we also end up talking about motherhood, neurodiversity, and reconciling seemingly disparate goals and dreams. I am so happy to be talking to my incredible friend, Alice Irene, in this episode. I really can't think of a better way to introduce the Heart Gallery podcast. Welcome, Alice Irene Whitaker. It's so nice to be here with you. It's so nice to be here with you, Rebecca. Thanks for inviting me. It's an honor. 
oh my gosh, the pleasure is mine. And you have to know that I have been so excited for this episode. I told you before that I've already recorded a couple episodes of the podcast, but this is going to be the first one. And the reason that I wanted to record this introductory heart gallery episode with you, I mean, it's it's really threefold. I think there's actually probably more reasons than three, but Mm -hmm. there's three main reasons. And the first is that when we recorded, after we recorded, maybe like almost like instantaneously, I started to feel very differently about communicating about these topics that I talk Mm -hmm. about on this podcast. Um, Essentially, art as a way to communicate about interrelationships between humans, people, individuals, and other humans, more than human creatures, and the earth. Even though I've been creating art in the climate and humanitarian space for years, doing infographics and illustrations and graphic facilitation, I didn't really have the confidence to really try to articulate the value that I saw in what I was doing. And I really stretched myself when I spoke with you. And afterwards, I was just, I don't know, there were some positive chemicals like going on. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, that, that felt really good. And I want to do more of that. And I want to get more into this a little bit later. But then the second reason that I wanted to have you is because you are an artist yourself. And you have a number of different mediums that are a part of your practice that I'd love for you to talk about as we chat. And then the third one is that you have this incredible podcast that I love, you know, that changed my life. We'll talk more about that through the podcast. No, really so much. And on Reseed, you have talked to a number of artists. And in those episodes, I can tell that you really believe in the power of art and the role that art can play in affecting change in our world Mm -hmm. and building a world that is um, more centered around care. You talk so much about care, which I love. And I just want to name a couple of the episodes that I encountered when I was preparing for this episode. My favorite one was with Tamara Lindemann from- Oh, I love that one so much. Station. Oh, it's so good. And you two talk about climate grief. And then there is another one with another artist, Stacey Tenenbaum, mm-hmm. who's a filmmaker. Um, who has a film called Scrap about our relationships with objects throughout their lifespan. And then you have a number of of episodes around textiles, the life cycle of textiles around fashion. And then also you have a number of podcasts with different writers. I consider writing a form of art as well, of course, in so many different ways. And so I'm wondering to start, can you tell us about Reseed? And what brought you to create that podcast and why why you have art as a thread going through a lot of the episodes? Absolutely. And thanks for the kind words. It is such a labor of love and something I deeply believe in. So every time I've found that I hear someone say, oh, I love that episode or it keeps me company while I'm having dinner or whatever it is, it really means so much. Like it's a treasure that helps me keep making it. So Reseed is a podcast about repairing our relationship with nature and each other as well and ourselves. And it's really about this journey from taking to caretaking. So how we 
as human beings at this moment of so many crises and heartbreak and heartache that I feel every day about the planet and this earth and our species. This is about how we become caretakers, no matter how it, quote, turns out. Like I think a lot of times it's like, oh, but will it matter? Will it actually make a difference? And for me, the act of taking care and the act of loving the earth and ourselves within it is really important to me and has become more important than knowing what happens. So these conversations explore all different people and how they are doing that. And so I picture it as all these different seeds across the sort of tapestry of the earth, you know, almost like a quilt where you have different geographies and different people within each of those landscapes who are planting different seeds that grow and are all sort of netting together or rooting together. So for one person that is, like you said, filmmaking, that's their gift and they're using it in their way. And someone else is a musician and someone else is a fashion designer. Someone else is an activist and they're all doing one of the re words. So reimagining the environmental movement to be oriented on justice or reflecting climate grief through music. So it's the difference of all of those things really speaks to me versus saying, oh, there's one way to do this. It's there are so many ways to do this. And absolutely each one of us is part of that in our own way. So why I started it was I was writing a book. I am writing a book and that was its whole journey unto itself. And through it, I was interviewing all of these different people, especially farmers and artists. And I'd be there, you know, in their barn, in my, our coats, speaking to one another and recording it for my book, never thinking that it would be aired. But as I started doing more and more of them, and I've interviewed dozens of people now, I was like, these have to be shared. I want to share them in a way that's more immediate than a book, which takes so long. And also in a way that I really have, and maybe I'm only seeing this in retrospect, that I'm able to shape it versus with book publishing while you're waiting for the opportunity to publish. This was a way that I could start to tell these stories when I was ready to. And so I'm a bit of a busy person being a mother and a career and writing. And so I kept saying, oh, and it's, I want to make this into a podcast, but I can't. There's no time. And after about, you know, when good ideas just find you and stick with you after a year and a half or so, I was like, okay, it's happening. And then I uh, started to work on it. And really a big part of it was you creating the art for it, the artwork and cover art. And it was not an ideal time for me to be doing the project, but because I had you creating this tangible expression of it and you to be accountable to, that really helped me. I'm like, oh, I need to get back to Rebecca. I need, oh, and the artwork made it so real. And so that really helped propel it from the idea into, into a real live breathing project. Oh my gosh. I feel like I'm, I'm like blushing. <laughs> <laughs> Accountability though is, is so powerful sometimes you hear this advice like oh if you have an idea like keep it to yourself like don't tell anyone you know until it's in the world because people will talk you down but I don't think that's the entire truth right I think that there is such power in having other people invest in our dreams and our plans yeah I think it's the opposite we're telling people about it I mean the I think the right people like treasured people who are going to be nourishing about it and not talk you down is really important because then 
it feels like some, there's someone there waiting for yeah. it. Whereas with so many ideas and art, there's no one asking for it. You know, no one's no. like, please create a new They're piece not of asking. art. <laughs> no. Yeah. yeah, so much. I, I did want to ask you, like, why podcast now? And I think you answered that so beautifully. And what you said about the book writing being very an isolated type activity not writing, well, actually I'm writing a few children's books and I know that you have oh, a children's beautiful. book project. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, it's so fun. I mean, but it's, it's very different from, from writing a bigger kind of a piece, which I know is what you're working on. But speaking of isolation, part of the reason that I decided to start a podcast now is because of isolation and, and it connects to, like I mentioned at the beginning, coming to terms with like wanting to get better at speaking about what it is that I care about, wanting to become a stronger artist and um, realizing that I was quite alone in two ways. Like the first was like social media for me, Instagram specifically, like for many years was the only place where I had any kind of art community. A few years ago, I joined one of these 100 day challenges where you create something for 100 days, you share every day, and there's a hashtag. This is like years ago, like maybe like four, four or five years ago. And through that hashtag, at that time, I connected with a few different lovely creators on Instagram. And it was so cool. I was like, oh, this is social media at its best. And I met a woman named Kelly. And when I was driving across the country, actually driving from Mexico City um, to Washington, D.C., in this like very uprooted moment of my life, I contacted this woman I had met on Instagram and I was like, hey, should I come see you in, in New Mexico? And she was like, yeah, come on over. And it was so fun. And she's fantastic. And she's an artist. And so that was like social media at its best. And that was the first time in my life that I felt any sense of belonging as an artist. But Instagram, oh my gosh, Instagram these days, it's so, (laughs) there's some great things. There's some great artists. You're there. There's, you know, there's so many. And, you know, I mostly follow either very close friends or people, artists, creators that I admire or activists. I'm also working in this space, I guess, another form of art. But every time I go on there, I'm just being forced to see these awful videos, these like TikTok type. Mm-hmm. videos and I keep saying like not interested in this content and Instagram keeps saying like oh you're interested you are interested like, yeah <laughs> <laughs> you will be interested <laughs> and so like I mean not to like go down this path too much but I just haven't found satisfaction there for the longest time and I, mm-hmm. I haven't been making those those kinds of connections really as much um, even though there there still is you know community potential there it's just, it's just not the place for it, I think. And I was, I was thinking like, oh, like I really want to do something, like to find a way to have community online. Because I think as we get older, if we're lucky, we can find community where we are. And I hope that we all have a chance to, to be a part of communities where we are. But then when you start to get more niche and you start to define your niche, it can be really nice to, to find people to talk about something like very specific with like the topic of our respective podcasts, for example. Mm -hmm. And I actually applied for this art fellowship last year here in Washington, D.C., and I didn't get it. This is a really cool fellowship. I I will apply again. But the the fellowship administrators, they offered 
people who were rejected a chance to to chat about their application. And I spoke with this lovely person named Jonathan who went through my application and he was essentially like, you don't know how to like be a professional artist. You don't know how to write an artist's CV. He's like, you're mm. supposed to, supposed to be like your name, where you were born and the year you were born. I was like, what? Like you would never see that in like the other types of worlds that you and I are in. Like yeah. no one would share their, like where they were born and what year. But that's, that's the norm, you know? So it was like a random, super specific thing like that. He's like, you just need to know like these hyper specific things. And he's like, also, you need to have a community of artists. You need to be out there meeting people. And so this coincides with me doing your podcast. This rejection probably came around the same time where I realized that like, oh, I, I really do love this space. And he helped me realize like, wow, I'm really like quite isolated. And also this realization that like Instagram's not really the place, it brought me to, to realize like, oh, if, if I foster a community like through this podcast, and that there's mm. this accountability, the accountability piece is real, right? I was like, oh, I could meet people not in a podcast setting, but there is something really nice about having to do it. You know, in those moments where you feel shy, yes. you feel like someone is way more awesome than you their career is just so impressive and fancy and yeah. yours is not. And there's this whole thing around that. So it's like, okay, this is like a reason I can reach out to really fancy people and say, I have this project. <laughs> and it gives such direction to that like cultivation of community. You know, it's like very specific. You're together talking about art. So it, I feel like kind of gets right to the heart of it versus hoping to talk about it with people that you don't know kind of thing. But I find that really helpful for me. You're so right. It's it's having to do the research too, which is such a joy. Mm-hmm. Actually, doing research is one of my favorite things. But having to really try to understand where someone is coming from, really try to understand and articulate like what it is that they are doing to you with their work is such a good practice. But it takes some effort. Have you found that? I have found that. And I was going to say on Instagram, I've been finding the same thing. And even just last night, my sister and I were talking about disconnecting from news and disconnecting from Instagram. And I'm so grateful because I have forged these beautiful relationships, really, and connections on Instagram more than any other social media platform. And I feel like it's resulted in very tangible growth and connection and learning for me. And at the very same time, I've found it to be so, I don't know, like manipulative, I guess. And yeah. the way that it did, I've, I found even in what I create, less and less people see it because they want me to do those videos that you're talking about. It They want us all to do those. And I don't wish to. And I just don't feel, do it. <laughs> I don't do it. I know. And I feel like instead I take these like moody videos of like raindrops falling on the moss. And I'm like, there, there's a video for you, Instagram. But I just find too, it's hard to find the people that I know and care about on there. And instead I'm yeah, being fed all of this content that I haven't asked for, like you said. So it is a really hard place to be sometimes. And I've taken some very, I want to say intentional breaks, but they've just kind of happened where I'm like, oh, I guess I haven't posted for a few days. And then it turns into three months where I barely go on. And I really don't miss it when I'm in that space of having been away. And I feel like when I think, oh, I should go back and do something there, I have like a physical feeling of not wanting to. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I I know exactly what you mean. 
do you feel like you've successfully replaced Instagram with other types of of community, like your podcast and your your local community in the beautiful woods of Canada? <laughs> uh, no, not really. <laughs> I feel like it's Instagram has sort of planted seeds that then grow in other places. So making connections with people that then I speak to in another way or, you know, an in-person event. Like two weeks ago, I hosted this conversation in our community here up in Wakefield, which you know and love so dearly. Yeah. And it was a conversation about regenerative agriculture and art and how they can work together. And it was 25 people in the library in a circle talking about these issues for two hours, you know, and coming together with farmers, with artists, all in one space. And to your point about community, it's really what we're missing. Like that was very rare and special. But if we had that all the time as humans right now, where we're coming together and sharing our grief and our worry and our ideas and laughing like we were that day, it's like that would be so transformative versus these online relationships. Is that part of what you're exploring through your your book and your podcast and your other work? Is is that your hope for the world to move towards that space? It is a hope I have for the world. And community is so much a part of what I've learned about and explored over the last few years. And it's interesting because I'm quite an introverted person and I'm not drawn to quote socializing or networking. But by community, I mean like deep rooted relationships and being able to call on each other when we're facing food shortages or extreme weather. Like I really think as those become more common, there's not going to be a lot of help maybe and that having it within communities and knowing who to go for when you need food kind of thing is going to be very transformative. But I'd say my hope for the world, or at least what I feel like my specific offering is really about perfectionism, perfectionism, because it's something I really struggle with and that I see so, so insidiously intertwined in climate and environmental spaces. And that that's something that I know so well and I'm trying to dismantle in myself and it will take a whole lifetime for sure. And I think that that's something I can offer. And the other is care and really orienting environmental action and movements and spaces around around care and using stories and art to do that. So I think those are my dreams for the world, or at least my dreams for myself in shaping the world we're in. I wonder if this this point you have about perfectionism, which connects to a lot of the types of activism, maybe, that we see in online spaces where it's it's a very, I don't know, sometimes I find it a little shouty, like it's a little like finger pointy. And I wonder if us putting so much stock in these online spaces, like I wonder if they are that type of communication just just thrives better there than this like other slower care inside imperfection type focused communication like what why do you think that's that's the way that it's going right now like that that's a lot of what we see i think it does come back to the social media conversation before that social media is so conducive to like hot takes and things that generate reactions and are 
you know, I don't know who needs to hear this, but you can't do this or you should do that or, you know, like all of that way of communicating. And so that's what we see. And then it's, it's what we see and hear. And we start communicating like that because we're human beings and we learn from each other. And so we're doing that in this weird online social media way versus when human beings are talking in a room, it's such a different way to talk and that that might bring out more of the nuance and the deep thinking and connection and compassion for each other. Maybe that's what it is. Like it's hard, harder to feel compassion on social media. Right. Because it's so much platform based, right? Like everyone has their little platform. So everyone is broadcasting out instead of, there's not really, I mean, is there any kind of space online, like where people are more pulled to be in conversation? I can't think of one off the top of my head. Me either. And I think Instagram, if not conversation, to me felt more about listening and sharing than it does now, you know, versus performance. Yeah. Maybe that's part of the perfection is the performative nature of it. Right. And something nice about the podcast format, like even though I guess you and I are now performing, (laughs) if anyone (laughs) listens to this. But I tend yeah, to forget. I feel like we're chatting though too. You know, yeah. like I feel like we're in conversation. So much. And I, I like when it's going well, I, I told you I recorded just a couple of these, but I forget that there's a microphone and my husband listened to one of the ones I recorded and he said, why did you say that? <laughs> this is public. But one other thing I wanted to... Teaser. I think episode three. One of the other pieces I wanted to bring in about why podcasting, and you gave me a bit of a teaser in an email that you shared with me, and I, I really want to, to hear your thoughts on this. Another reason that I decided to podcast now, the reason I felt brave enough to podcast now, in addition to you giving me the chance to try mm-hmm. it out on Reseed and realize how fun it is and, and that it's even possible to do such a thing was that I received an autism spectrum diagnosis uh, last year. And it was first a self-diagnosis. And then I I worked with a professional for a real diagnosis, a quote-unquote real diagnosis. Hmm. I say quote-unquote real because the diagnosis for autism is still very inaccessible for so many people. And so within the community, self-diagnosis is seen as, as valid. Side note. I received mm-hmm. this diagnosis and it turned my whole life. I That sounds so hyperbolic, but it really oh. did turn so much upside down for me in a really wonderful way in the end. Like there was, it was, it was like two months when I was going through this. It was essentially going through like two months of intense, constant life processing, just like real of my life going through my head and just starting to see everything that I'd been through, childhood, school, professional situations, friendships, relationships in, I don't know, it was almost like a missing puzzle piece came into the picture. And I started to be able to have more compassion for myself, um, like where I hadn't been able to before, because I just didn't understand why I had been a certain way and why certain things were so challenging. And speaking specifically about the professional context, how this applies to to how I was professionally, I had for years just been spending so much, like 99% of my time just focused on 
succeeding in tasks that were were kind of basic. You know, just just mm-hmm. trying to do things that other people could do quite easily from from my perspective, like that just shouldn't have been hard. Like paying attention in meetings, like understanding flow of conversation (laughs) when there's just a ton of different people speaking, like being able to task switch super fast, being able to go on a work trip and, you know, not come home and be like exhausted and sick and need to like not speak to people for weeks afterwards. No, I just like didn't understand why I had these struggles. And when I got the diagnosis, I started to see how I had just neglected myself so much, like that I was just so focused on the struggles, like to the point where I was like obsessively watching these like YouTube videos on like productivity mm-hmm. and like workplace effectiveness and like how to get things done and how to structure days and like systems of organization. I was like, if I just like figure this out, then I will succeed. And I was just, I think I was just filled with so much self-loathing because like, there was just like some things that I couldn't yeah. figure out. And maybe even more importantly, the diagnosis helped me see that I was neglecting so much the areas that were strengths and namely like getting very, very deep into topics that I care about, working Mm -hmm. uninterrupted, you know, for, for hours, sometimes like, you know, 10 plus hours, Mm -hmm. like just getting like super fixated and really like really solving a problem. And for me, like the the way that I did that was through art and through visual translation. And I had just sort of like pushed that to the back burner in favor of trying to get better at the things that I was just really bad at. And then when I got this diagnosis, I was like, oh my gosh, I I can stop. I can stop doing that. Mm. And I can start to like build in more of the, the pieces that I love. And that's a really kind thing to do to myself. And that that in combination with the BC episode. Got me here. And I mentioned to you in the email, I wanted to like not just drop this on you because <laughs> sharing this diagnosis with people, it can be quite triggering. You know, people like have a lot of opinions, mm-hmm. especially like when you've been like masking certain things about yourself for your whole life. They're like, no, no, you're not that. So I wanted to just like let you know ahead of time, like Alice, Irene, I might talk about this. And you told me something really interesting about yourself. You didn't tell me much, but you said that you also had a recent experience with neurodiversity. And I wondered if you want to share. I'd love to share. And it really isn't something I've talked about a lot, but I'm getting more comfortable with it, I think. And everything you said there resonates with me so much. And I think that's the beauty of a diagnosis and being able to talk about it is not being alone and being like, that sounds so much like my experience. And what you said there is so liberating, like to know it and look back at your life and process it and then say like, I can stop doing that. And there's a reason why it's not just that I'm bad, but it's like, there's a reason. So yeah, I, um, in the last year and a half, I also, uh, was diagnosed as neurodivergent and I have severe, that's in quotes, that was the actual word, (laughs) severe ADHD, which has so many similarities to what you were just describing. And like you were saying earlier, before we started recording, like there's just the labels and everything are so complex and can be problematic. Like the, you know, even the word disorder in there versus like you're framing it, like there's so many strengths and often it's not a a deficiency in attention. It's actually like an extreme hyper attention and extreme focus on whatever 
the thing I'm interested in is. So extreme. <laughs> so extreme. Yeah. Like and then you realize separate. you're like, oh, other people are not this extreme. It's just. No, <laughs> like obsessed. And it can be yeah. for years and it can be like a food. Like it can be like a food that I eat every single day or twice a day for multiple like weeks. And then I just don't eat it ever again. You know, like it's so, that that's a small example. But for me, yeah. the ways that it's really. Well, first I'll say it was really shocking to me. And like you were saying how people are like, no, 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 you don't have that. I've experienced that a lot and experienced it myself too, because my therapist a couple of times said, well, that sounds like ADHD. And I kind of laughed like, oh, good one. you know. And then after she said it a few times and started exploring it and looking it up, I was absolutely shocked. Like I had first of all, no knowledge at all about ADHD. Like I think I just have pop culture references, which kind of talk about it negatively and yeah. referring to so um, hyperactive boys. Yeah. Same with autism. And yeah. Yeah. Like it's just a complete, like I just had no idea anything about it, completely ignorant to it. And as I started reading, it was both kind of earth shattering, but also so liberating to be like, this is me like this is me and for me it's with the masking like I'm extremely productive and quote successful and have really thrived in school and work environments but to the great detriment of myself and like a lot of inner chaos like chaos at home chaos in my finances or anything administrative like benefits and taxes like all of those things I really have the hardest time with. And I, even just knowing that it's a real thing and being able to be like, oh, I need help with this, or I need to really focus on it, spend a lot of time with it. And this is hard for me has been really helpful. But yeah, there's just a lot of chaos and also a lot of perfectionism has been my way, one of my ways to deal with it. And then learning about like extreme sensitivity and extreme like rejection sensitivity that people with ADHD and maybe autism, I'm not sure, can experience almost as like a physical pain. Like, and it just brought so much. It's like, oh yeah, if anyone has said the slightest thing like when I was a child, I remember just like burying my head and crying yeah. in like my I desk. Like, so much. Yeah. And being like, so sense, or if someone on the street says like, you know, move your bike or whatever, like <laughs> crying and thinking about it for days, you know, like just extreme Alex, I mean, rejection I, I sensitivity. Really, I just have to share that the, the other day I was, we just moved to this new house and I've been trying to find some things on Facebook marketplace, a great place to find secondhand things. And I messaged this guy about a desk and I asked him if he would take less money for it. And I offered a, a price and he just wrote back like one word. It was just like, no period. And I was with my husband. I was so crushed. I was like, he said, and was like, I was destroyed. So I relate to that so much. I was like, why? And now I can look at it and have more of a sense of humor about it and be like, okay, it's because, you know, I have this tendency. But, but yeah, it can be really perplexing if you it get can. crushed by someone on the street or someone on Facebook Marketplace and you don't understand like why this is affecting you so much. Right. And being able to say like, oh, it's not that I'm bad or wrong or should feel shame. It's like, oh, I'm a very sensitive person. And with that, with all of this, there are so many beautiful strengths that we undervalue in our society, like having such an open heart and sensitivity to the world that you're so connected to it. 
and the ability to hyper-focus and do an incredible amount of, on something I care about and, and that we care about and being able to like see connections all over, like even with these podcasts, you know, being able to understand and see and feel connections in a different way than most people can, I think are such beautiful gifts and so much being able to like celebrate that and lean into it. And like, I love how you said that, like being like, oh, I can, I can stop trying and stop trying to be this other person that completely conforms into this ideal of what it is to be a human being and instead lean into these other ones and find the people that that appeals to. So it's been very liberating. Sorry, not to throw economic terminology in there, but there's such an opportunity cost that I found. If you're able to, like if you have the luxury to stop doing some of that, like if you don't have to show up in a certain kind of way, which of course Mm -hmm. is a great privilege, then you can start to focus on those other things. But I feel like those of us who have that privilege and have the ability to speak about these things without our well-being being threatened. I don't know. I feel I feel a sense of responsibility to share about this mm-hmm. because I think about how many people don't have the ability to maybe come out about whatever they might have going on in their brain, in their workplace or, you know, in their life. And right. I, I do think that we need to start normalizing this so so people can bring their strengths out in our society. Right. It's such a loss if you think about it, like what you just said. If if you think about how many people are maybe burying their gifts, um, their strengths, their sensitivities, um, because they don't feel safe to to be that way or they don't feel like it's acceptable. Um, it's it's very sad for the world. Yeah, absolutely. It makes me sad too. And all of these people struggling to, I don't know, be passable at some regular tasks, you know, it's, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Like spending all my life, like years, like trying to like be better at emailing. Like what a life. Oh my gosh. Rebecca, the chaos. If you could see, (laughs) it's just chaos over here. Like emails, portal. My husband and I always laugh. It's anything with a portal. Like the second that something has a portal with a login, I'm literally like learning it for the first time and lost and angry and like, but where is where is this thing? You know, like I just <laughs> really struggle so with those things. The portals are bad. Yeah. The portals They're are bad. evil and the passwords. Yeah. Oh gosh. <laughs> Anyways, I'm so grateful for you sharing. So you, have you seen a big shift in your life? I really have. I think it's so liberating. Like I just feel like a liberated person in a lot of ways from it. And I really did find it out at the same time as the podcast, as I was first. Oh, was it the beginning? It. Like, Yeah, it was at the beginning and really alongside it. And like now, you know, just released episode 34 and through that whole time has been when I've been processing this. And it really, for me, was like, oh, this is where I thrive. Like I'm thriving in this thing because I'm able to enter into deep conversation with people that's not small talk, but it is very real conversation one-on-one. Like I thought I might be nervous because I'm quote introverted, but I'm like, no, actually I just like to relate in this, this way versus in like, to your point, a group of people where it's overwhelming. So I found that the deep conversation appealed to me and the connections being like, oh, there's a connection between this birder poet and this 
justice advocate and this farmer, you know, like for me, the podcast and ADHD, like seeing those connections were really interconnected and made me sort of, as I was processing the diagnosis, see where my strengths lied and just learn more about it. So they really are interconnected for me and finding my voice and being able to be honest about it. Although I've never spoken about it like this, I ever really probably to anyone actually, Rebecca, like I've spoken about it in sort of passing on the podcast, but never talked about it like this. So it's new for me. I'm so honored. Thank you for being willing to share. What a surprise that this this podcast has this as a, as a big central piece and not surprising at all. If, if I think about how it affected my life and now hearing from you, I'm really glad that we're able to talk about this. Me too. And thanks for creating the space for it. And it is so interconnected with art and that way of thinking. And uh, it is important to me to talk about it too. It just occurs to me because my children, I have three kids, as you know, and they, I imagine at least one or two of them from what I can tell also have ADHD and it is, or are neurodivergent and it is genetic. So for me, being able to talk about it in positive ways and and also acknowledge the hard parts of it and give them tools and being able to name it and being able to celebrate the superpowers of it as we talk about it so that they they have that experience growing up is really important to me. They're so lucky to have you and your kids are full of superpowers. They really are. They're the coolest (laughs) young people. Actually, when I opened my computer for this conversation today, the photo on my wallpaper is at your wedding, your beautiful, (sighs) ethereal, magical wedding. And it's the five of us all with like sparkles on our faces and wings, and it's just all very magical. So that's on my computer. Your efforts were so good. And it was so nice to have you there, especially because we didn't know each other that well at that point. And I just had this feeling, for those of you listening, Alice, Irene, and I met through one of our mutual really good friends. And I just, I just had a sense that we needed to have you there and your family there. Oh, I'm so on. It was so special. I wish I could repeat it and go again. It was so fun. (laughs) (laughs) Let's do it again. I wonder if I can connect this conversation about neurodiversity and especially this, what you're talking about in terms of this sensitivity that you feel like you have, that you go through the world with. And connect that back to your focus on this culture of care that you're Mm. committed to in all the different kinds of work that you do. And you mentioned something at the beginning that I had to write down because there was something about it that I wanted to dig deeper into. This idea that taking care is greater than knowing what happens. Mm -hmm. And I'm so captivated because I think that a lot of us, that we can fall into this trap of fixating on trying to know what happens. And when things don't look so good, when we when we start to feel like, oh, what is going to happen is potentially not good, it can be an entrapment of sorts. And it can be hard to get out of that place. And I think that your podcast on climate grief, the Tamara got into that a little bit. And I wonder if you can talk about how you came to be someone who focuses on creating this culture of care over being fixated on on knowing like where it is that we're actually going as a society, as a world? Such a good question. And one of my essential questions, I think, for me and my life, at least right now, I think there are a couple of reasons or origins for it. One is like I'm so deeply feeling and empathetic, as are so many people. 
And that's been my entire life to the point that something like seeing a bird die when I was a kid or reading something on the news like can just stick with me. Like it can break my heart like so physically and so overwhelmingly and for such a long period of time. So that way of relating to the world and to relating it to it at this moment of such peril and and heartbreak is really just how I am, you know, like that's just how I am and have always been. And that's really hard. And I like to think it's there for a reason though, which is feeling that care and experiencing it. Another part for me is motherhood and becoming a mother and really seeing myself as a caretaker and feeling like that is my greatest bliss really is mothering them and being a caretaker and being able to name that as part of who I am, which I wouldn't have been able to do before that infinite like universe wide love that I experienced when they were born and every day since. So that has really helped me with my identity around being a caretaker And I think the last one is that I really struggle to take care of myself and have always struggled to take care of myself and have, I've often chosen doing a lot or the things that I believe in or caring for others over care for myself. And it's something I'm really consciously trying to teach myself, but it's very messy and very imperfect, that journey. But that's something that I want to that I, I don't think I'll really be the caretaker that I want to be for my earth, for our earth, for my children, until I've learned to do it for myself. So that's part of my ongoing struggle and journey is, is doing that. I think the part of experiencing care as a process rather than like a tactic to reach some beautiful product or like endpoint where the world is safe and climate change has been reversed and biodiversity is flourishing like that vision. And that's what I want. That's what I imagine. But I think it's so easy to be like, oh, well, it's too late or it won't result in that anyways, or I'm one person. And to be thinking more about what will the impact be or what will the end result be? Can we even fix it anyways? And to me, through writing my book and the podcast and just my own personal journey the last few years, it's become less important and it's better for me to think it doesn't matter what happens. Of course it does matter, but it's out of my control, but we are human beings and we love to take care of things. That's what we do. Like the way a bird flies and a frog hops, you know, we take care of each other. We take care of our children. We take care of our gardens and soil and nature. Like that is in us through and through and embracing that process and that part of ourselves to me is more empowering than saying, oh, but what's the point of it anyways, or we can't actually do this. And I don't think any of us know what will happen. So why focus on that versus this act of taking care? Do you see care, taking care as an art form? And I'm also curious, like how you see mothering, if you see like any kind of like art creative component to, to being a mother. We haven't talked about this much yet, but you are an artist. Um, you're a writer. I mean, people can hear from from how you speak. You're so poetic and how you speak and that translates in your writing. And I know you've been a dancer and I think that gardening is a form of art. And I'm sure that you do so many other things. I know that you, you're very passionate about textiles and fashion as well. 
And so I wonder if you can speak to like how art permeates this philosophy that you have of care. Art is so embedded in it. And for me, they all reside within me because like all humans, I'm like many things. And going back to my entire life, looking back, I've always been torn between art and activism and thought I had to choose. And my identity at different times in my life has been all one or the other. So I remember in high school, we did a career studies class and you had to draw what you would be one day. Those are terrible. (laughs) Yes. Right. And I literally drew a diagonal line across it. I'm not a visual artist, by the way. So you can picture like a very clumsy drawing. But on one side was me dancing on a stage with a spotlight, which at my that time was my expression of art. And then on the other side was me volunteering and like helping children. And, you know, which again, at that time was my expression of what justice and, and activism looks like. So I was literally like, two different paths. And then I started to try and knit them together. Like I was a, you know, training to be a professional dancer and dance was my everything, my identity, all of my time. And, but I would start to host like an art dance show where the proceeds would go to a cause I cared about. So trying to find concrete ways, like it was like art for activism, I think was the name of it in university, you know? So starting to try and knit them together. And then I left dance and was all activism and, and justice and gender equality and it's through time that I'm like, have rekindled that artist identity. And now I'm yeah. like, oh, they just all coexist in me and they're all expressions of me. But I would create art, doesn't matter if it was basket weaving or ceramics or painting or music. I want to play cello. Like, I'm just such an artist and the medium has changed. But for me, uh, writing and poetry is. Uh, really a through line and the one that has captured my heart and that I want to do for my whole life. And it's funny, even looking back, I had a dance company or dance brand, I guess, for myself, and it was called Ink on Paper. And my main dance works were about women writers. So even then in dance, it was about writing. And so it's the what I found and moving to the woods here really happened at the same time that I said, I am a writer, like a capital W writer and embraced it more wholeheartedly. Oh, wonderful. That diagonal line on your piece of paper, it was really just a needle with thread. Oh, Rebecca, I love that. Oh, (laughs) Oh, I relate so much to what you're saying too. Um, I, I haven't been an artist, capital A artist in my life either. I think only in the last couple of years, maybe have I started to even feel like I could possibly identify that way. But when I was younger, like art was what flowed and art was my way of being. But then I think I fell into maybe like a similar trap as you feeling like, oh, if I want to affect change in the world, I have to do something quote unquote serious. And I, I mm-hmm. shared about this on your podcast. I just didn't have anyone saying that it's possible to to create your own reality like with your tools focusing on what you want and luckily like over time we've managed to find out that very much is possible so i'm looking forward to seeing like how you continue to to weave those together no doubt it's a constant evolution and your kids are going to benefit from your perspectives too and i'm so curious to see like what they um, start to do with their lives as they get older oh me too and 
art really is part of motherhood for me and creativity. And it's such an opportunity to like break old cycles and start new ones and create and lead. Like motherhood is just so rich and powerful and so much stronger than the picture of it that we have been sold, you know, as this nice soft thing or a naggy thing or whatever it is. Like it really is such an opportunity to remake the world. That gives me so much hope hearing that. I've been on such an adventure trying to understand like what motherhood is and might be as I go into this phase of life in the next few months. And it's it's wonderful to have so many wonderful mother role models around, yourself included. Alice, Irene, I wonder if I can just ask a couple more questions maybe like a little more rapid fire. And there's the, the first one is what else you're working on right now? You mentioned the book. I wonder if you want to share more about that and if there's any other project that you're passionate about. I would love to. My book is my other baby and I'm so blessed to have a, a book deal and that it will be coming out next fall, fall 2024. I am just so excited and it's something I've been working for and to have it real is almost surreal and I'm yeah really excited about it. So the book is called Homing and it's about a lot of the things we're talking about but it's uh, an environmental memoir of me leaving an exhausting life in the city where before I was commuting literally hours a day and just sort of racked with eating disorder and perfectionism and overwork and deciding, like we're talking about care, to change how I'm living, where I'm living, and move to a cabin in the woods. And then, of course, though, finding that all of those struggles come with me and how I can unentangle them and really strip out perfectionism out of my life and find that care for myself, but also for the earth and for a community. So it's really about finding home in our own bodies, finding home in a geography where we are with the people with whom we share a community and finding home as part of the earth, not a part of it, but a part of it, if you know what I mean, and being really a part of the ecology and the earth that we're living in. And it has lots of bird research in there, obviously, such beautiful creatures who home and find ways, you know, just the most Herculean efforts to find their way around the planet and find home. And so they're really a part of the story as well. Oh, I can't wait. And we'll have to have you back on the podcast when yes. the book comes out. And as a final question, uh, I've been asking everyone this in the other two that I filmed that are going to come out after this one. I've been asking people to share three pieces of art or artists that have mm. shaped how you see the world. And I thought that since this is sort of that you and I are interviewing each other of sorts in this um, episode, that we could each share like one at a time. I love that. Oh my If you gosh. don't feel okay. like it's too much of like a game show. <laughs> no, no, I love it. Oh, this is the game show part of the podcast. Good. I can start because, <laughs> because you yeah, brought yeah. up birds. So one for me is this um, artist who I think I'm going to get to interview. He confirmed, but we haven't set a date yet. His name's Chris Jordan. And when I was in college, I saw this incredible work that he did. For, oh gosh, it's so grim. It's actually not really like in line with our, like, our theme today. But it's, um, he did this portrait series of albatross carcasses on Midway Atoll in the middle of the ocean. And these carcasses were filled with plastic. 
And this was the first time that I connected how our, what we do with our trash can have an impact that is wide reaching. Mm -hmm. So that is, that is one for me. Mm. Beautiful. And that's so what art can do, right? Versus like a thousand articles about plastic. But then when you see that, it is different. So I will stick with birds. And for me, it's Drew Lanham, the poet and ornithologist. And he has a book called Sparrow Envy, a collection of poetry that has just moved me uh, to my core. I wish I had a, a passage to read from it. But yeah, Drew Lanham is one of mine for sure. Beautiful poet. How beautiful. Another one for me is this Argentinian artist named Tomas Araceno. And I was in New York uh, last year and I had a chance to see an exhibit that he had there on spiders and spider relationships, spider interrelationships. And there were two really cool parts to it. One where you could be a spider and you got to climb up on this really tall web and lay in the pitch black and just feel vibrations through the web which was incredible, like getting to step into the spider experience. And another piece of that exhibit was seeing um, these intricate webs that spiders created in these plexiglass boxes. And they were interwoven webs um, made by solitary and community-based spiders. So there are like some, there's some spiders that prefer to create by themselves and others that create in community. And you just like saw these cool interlinkages between them. Just like humans. It's just like humans. Oh, Okay, my solitary spider. The next one for me is, again, a poet, but I will introduce a woman. So her name is Dorian Nigrioffa, and I hope I've said it correctly. And she's an Irish poet, and she has this stunning book. It's not poetry. It's more memoir, and it's called A Ghost in the Throat. And she talks about motherhood and being a writer, but in a way that is like no writing I've ever experienced. And it just... I so saw myself in it and also was really inspired by it. And she talks about writing in a book, like in the car while picking up her kids for five minutes or going through her head as she's scraping cold oatmeal into the garbage. And it's just such a different expression of what being a writer and an artist means versus the archetype we have in our heads about what a writer looks like. And her writing is absolutely stunning. So she's one for me. Incredible. When you said ghost, you made me think of of a woman creator, but I can't remember her name, so I'll put it in the notes. Documentary filmmaker who made a movie called The Ghosts in Our Machine about Mm. animals within different parts of human society and how we utilize animals for food, fashion, in science, and one more space that is not coming to me right now. But the way that this film was powerful was that it created these intense deep connections with animal individuals within these spaces where we often like see animals as a mass, you know, a faceless mass of Mm. creatures. Um, But by connecting with specific individuals working in these sectors, there was this shift that happened for me where I started to interact differently with how I consumed animal products. Wow. I love how animals have come up so much in this art. That's a big part of our relationship with this earth. We need to deepen our relationships with animals too. It's, it's, I don't think we talk about it enough. I agree. It's such a human part of who we are, you know, connecting mm-hmm. with animals. We really, and we've forgotten. And I think we found a way to do it with pets in a very public way, but not the other animals. My 
third one would be Tamara Lindman, who you brought up from the weather station and her album Ignorance about climate change and other things was for me one that I've played on repeat, which just has completely affected me and to me is an expression of what climate art can look like without being completely this is climate art. You know what I mean? Like it has a real, like it appeals to me on many, with many sensibilities and I just love it. And I also saw her live perform it and it was one of my first like mid COVID post COVID in-person experiences with just a room of people moving to music. And I remember at one point just wanting to like weep with like the beauty of being with people with this music. And it's one I can listen to every single day. So Tamara Lindemann of the weather station. Thank you, Alison. You'll remember that experience forever, no doubt. Absolutely. And I was a solitary spider there. I went by myself, <laughs> but surrounded by community spiders, which is co-creating. Nice to be. Yes. <laughs> oh, beautiful. You've given me so much to think about, and this has been such a gift. I can't wait to share this. I'm so grateful that the first episode going live will be this conversation with you. I'm looking forward to future collaborations with you. I'm so honored, Rebecca. Thanks for welcoming me in and creating this. I can't wait to listen to them. And this is actually my first podcast interview on the other side. So thanks for wow. Thanks for creating that space for me too. You're such a pro. I wouldn't have guessed. Oh, the first of oh, many. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much, Alice Irene. Thanks, Rebecca. Take care. And that is it for the first episode of the Heart Gallery. Thank you for sharing this space and time with myself and Alice Irene. I encourage you to look up the accompanying blog post where I will share some of my and Alice Irene's milestone creations. You can see a link to that in the show notes. And I will be doing that for all of the coming episodes. Most of the people I will be talking to are creating visually in some kind of way. And I thought it was important to have a visual accompaniment to go along with the listening experience. I hope you'll be back for coming episodes with some very special guests. I might be biased, but I think you'll agree when you hear from them. If you have any ideas for who else I could converse with here, please do get in touch at hello at the-heart-gallery.org. I also welcome any other thoughts about the podcast there. You can also find me at Rebecca Rivola on social media. And it'll be lovely to have your support in the form of subscribing or rating or commenting and definitely sharing with others. Thank you also goes to Samuel Cunningham for the podcast editing and to Cosmo Sheldrake for the podcast music. I encourage you to go listen to the whole song. It's called Pelicans We. Until next time.